0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch Podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch TechCrunchDailyCrunch.com
2: I never would have pegged you as someone with a wine cellar, Seth.
0: Yeah, well, watch your head, because it's a low ceiling here.
2: Do you even drink wine?
0: You know, you can store things other than wine in a wine cellar. Anything you want to keep cool or, or dry, like a telescope or paper mache models of Jupiter. Oh, the lights are to your right.
2: <laughs> you have more than one paper mache model of Jupiter.
0: Do you keep any wine down here at all? Now, there are a couple of bottles floating around somewhere, I think. But but never mind that. We're here to find that roll of film. So you never developed these photos of Sputnik, is that right? Not not this roll. I mean, I, I took three rolls. <laughs> you must have been pretty excited about the launch. Well, you know, it was the first Earth satellite. But my buddy Jerry had bought this new fine-grain developer, and we were going to try it out. But then he went away to camp, so I never did develop this particular roll.
2: So I'm just moving some of these boxes out of the way so you can clear a path. By the way, what, what are we looking for?
0: Well, it looks like a roll of film. I mean, it's kind of tube-shaped, and it's four inches long, standard 120 film.
2: What all this stuff is, I don't know. What I do know is this is Big Picture Science. I'm Molly Bentley, and you, sir, are a pack rat.
0: Look, I'm Seth Shostak, and no, I'm a curator of valuable scientific keepsakes. Careful with that. That's my slide rule collection. You
2: have more than one slide rule?
0: I'm into parallel computation. Oh, there's the motherboard for my first computer. I mean, I saved it because I figured all the gold-plated contacts might make it valuable.
2: Valuable in the thousands or the single-dollar units? (laughs)
0: Well, of course. Gold is valuable these days. I mean, for properties other than its lack of corrosion and its aesthetic appeal. Careful there. Scientists who work in nanotechnology, and by the way, do you know what that is?
2: It's the study of things at the very, very small nanoscale.
0: Right, at a scale where the familiar 92 elements begin to take on a whole new set of physical properties. And that, and that applies to gold, too, by the way, Molly. I mean, it's really nifty. And I talked to a physicist, Chris Sorensen was his name, because he's using, are you listening? Yes. Because he's using nano gold particles to see if it's possible to make hydrogen fuel. I mean, it's not done it yet, but it might work.
2: The idea is that the very small scale gold has different properties.
0: Right. Now, you just keep thinking small, but keep your eyes out for that roll of film.
2: I am.
1: What you need to know is how big a nanometer is. It's a billionth of a meter, and that's uh, a thousandth of a thousandth of a thousandth. Essentially, a nanometer is about ten times as big as an atom. Okay,
0: so uh, how do you make a
1: nanoparticle?
0: I mean, can we just use, you know, super-duper ginju knives or something, or grind something down to
1: nanometer size? That's a good question, Seth, and in fact, a lot of people think that you can start with something really big and then chop it down to smaller sizes, and that's called the top-down approach, which people have done for lots of years. But more recently, in the last 10 or 20 years, people realized There's a bottom-up approach where you start with atoms and molecules and actually build up to the nanometer size.
0: And and that's presumably what you're doing in your lab?
1: Yes, we are. We use what we think is some pretty clever chemistry to make gold atoms come together and form nano-sized particles of gold that are about five nanometers in diameter. Each one of these nanometer particles of gold has about 4,000 atoms in it, and we have a way of stopping them from growing any further. If we want to,
0: so you could fill a jar with uh, particles, uh, each of which has on the order of hundreds of gold atoms in it. I mean, and they all have more or less the same number of atoms.
1: Yeah, well, that was part of the clever chemistry. Sometimes, if you're not careful, you make nanoparticles, but there are a wide distribution of sizes. And that's not as interesting because, as it turns out, one of the really neat things about nanoparticles is that their properties depend upon their size. So, if you got a bunch of different sizes, you got a bunch of different properties. So, ideally, you make just one size and then you'll get just one property. And then, if you're really good, you change the size and you'll change the properties too. So, a lot depends upon good chemical control.
0: Now, Chris, if you make a bunch of these nanoparticles out of gold, as you just suggest, they're not just tiny pieces of gold, I mean in terms of their properties, the way they behave, the way they interact physically or chemically, and yet, you know, in high school we were all taught that gold is gold, a gold atom is always a gold atom, but these guys are uh, a little different in their properties, isn't that true?
1: Well, yeah, and actually gold atoms are not the same as a hunk of gold that, for instance, might be in a ring around your finger. A gold atom has entirely different properties than that hunk of gold. When all these atoms get together, they conspire and act like a metal, whereas a gold atom all by itself is not a metal because it hasn't got any buddies to mess around with. So that implies that there's some transition between bulk properties that you and I see on the centimeter and meter scale that we live on and the atomic properties way down in the subnanometer regime. So how do we explore that transition between the atomic and bulk properties? We make nanoparticles that sit in that magic region between those two, and we end up with remarkably different properties. Let me give you an example. Looking at my wedding ring, I see a nice golden band that reminds me of my wonderful wife. But if I make five nanometer golden particles, they're not golden anymore. They're purple. Can you believe that? Purple gold. That's fantastic. Well, uh,
0: why is their behavior different? I mean, it seems to me that if I took this ring here and sawed it up, it it would always look like a a gold-colored metal. Why is it that when you get down to the size of just a couple of hundred atoms, things get different?
1: Well, there's two reasons for why the properties of nanoparticles are different than the bulk. And one is due to the uh, overall structure of the particle, and one is due to the surface of the particle. Because the particle is so small, the electrons are confined to a small space, and that allows them to resonate better with their quantum mechanical wave functions in ways that are similar to an atom. They're almost like super big atoms, and so they have a different quantum mechanical ability. The other is their surface. When you finally divide matter, you get a lot more surface atoms. You and I have maybe one part in a billion of all our atoms on our surface of our skin. On the other hand, a nanoparticle that's five nanometers in size has a third of all its atoms on the surface, and those surface atoms have different properties than when they're buried in the bulk.
0: So when you talk about nanotechnology, it, it sounds somewhat promising because you take these, you know, ninety-two or whatever number of elements that uh, you know we we inherited here from nature, but that you can give them a whole new set of properties. It's like a, a whole bunch
1: of new periodic tables. That's exactly right, and that's what excites so many of us in the field. We like to think that we have a three-dimensional periodic table where we have the normal two dimensions of where the atoms are placed in their rows and columns in the periodic table. But now we can change the properties with this third dimension of size. So by varying the size of, for instance, a piece of copper, we get different properties. And of course then we can go from copper to nickel, like normally do with chemistry, and get different properties that way too. So now the chemists, or the technologists in general, have this super Toy box to build things with.
0: Well, I think a lot of listeners are probably asking themselves, "So, uh, what kind of toys have you built?" Uh, I, I've heard about sun creams that uh, you know might <laughs> keep you from burning uh, down in Florida
1: when you go out to the beach. Uh, is is that kind of the extent of it? One good application in nanoparticles is light harvesting. Just imagine how cool it would be if instead of putting gasoline in the gas tank of your Porsche, you put water in there. You're saying, water? But yeah, if I put in nanoparticles with the right properties, they can absorb sunlight and break the water apart into hydrogen and oxygen. Then I can burn that in the cylinders of my Porsche, zoom down the interstate at 140 miles an hour, and you know what's coming out of the tailpipe? Uh, I don't know. I knew you wouldn't, Seth. I asked that rhetorically, of course. Water!
0: I answered it rhetorically, (laughs) yes.
1: Water is coming out of the tailpipe instead of that nasty greenhouse gas called carbon dioxide. So you can see if we could reap the energy of the sun and turn water into hydrogen and oxygen, we'd have a very innocuous but plentiful power supply.
0: Okay, so that's one possible application. Absolutely. I I, I assume this technology being in its uh, beginning stages, really, uh, I mean, this might be a transformative technology, right? Or, or is it always going to remain just some sort of niche area of physics?
1: Oh, no, I, don't, I think it's definitely transformative. I think that we're going to create a whole new universe of materials out of nanoparticles and their like. Chris Sorensen, thanks so much for talking with me. I really enjoyed it, Seth. Anytime.
2: Well, Chris Sorensen could probably find material with pretty interesting properties down here in your wine cellar, Seth, and he could haul it back to his lab at Kansas State University and make, I don't know, all kinds of revolutionary new materials with it with something like this. What
0: is this? What not that obvious? That's a 120th scale model of a bath escape. Where did a bath escape from? No, I think that's probably the bath. It might have inspired the one that uh, Picard and Walsh used to, to go down into the Mariana Trench, or maybe it was the other way around. That
2: the trench went down into them?
0: Trenchant remark, no.
2: That maybe your model was
0: inspired on their famous dive? Well, it might have been inspired by their famous bath escape. <laughs> hey, cool grandfather clock. Yeah, it was my grandfather's. Oh, it's beautiful, but it doesn't keep time as well as it once did. I I really can't figure out what to do with it.
2: Just replace the insides. Hang on, i got to move this box. <laughs> replace the insides with an atomic clock, and then it'll be super precise.
0: Yeah, well, satellites do use atomic clocks to keep our GPS systems precise.
2: You know, there's a scientist at the National Physical Laboratory in the UK and she works on atomic clocks. Her name is Anne Curtis. And the reason that I know this is that reporter Marissa Fessenden was at a science conference and cornered her in between the sessions in a hallway to talk about metrology, which is...
0: The science of measurement. (laughs) Did I get it
2: right? You did get it right. And how Ann Curtis's lab is building ever more precise atomic clocks.
0: Well, we were discussing nanotechnology earlier, but if you're working with atomic clocks, you're now in nanotime. And, and that's what we have, nanotime, to find my film. And get out of here before I go hypoglycemic. I didn't have any breakfast. You should um,
2: bring granola bars with you.
0: I, I could. Hey, we, can you move that box over there? Because, because I think what's behind them might be where we should be looking.
2: You know, it's it's really cool to think about, though, that the satellites are up there orbiting the Earth and they can tell our smartphones information that allows them to tell us where we are down here.
3: And really what it all boils down to is it's the clocks and satellites that tell us where we are. Precision timing is absolutely essential to navigation right now. Can you give an example of how precise they need to be and why that's important? Well, you can imagine this this change in time. It's defined by the clocks on the satellites, essentially. And so if these satellite times vary, then your position is going to change, or your apparent position is going to change on the Earth. So if these clocks are off by, I don't know, if they're off by a hundredth of a second, is that going to really be that big of a difference? On yeah, the a hundred of a, a hundredth of a second would be an enormous change because you have to remember that the speed of light is about three billion meters per second. And so what you really need to be within, say, a foot accuracy is nanosecond timing. So timing that's good to a billionth of a second. How do you have a clock that is that precise? Well, first you might want to ask what exactly a clock is. Um, Because again, most people, they think about the time on their wristwatch or now the time on their mobile phone. What, What a clock really is, is simply the combination of an oscillator. So for example, something that ticks, a pendulum swinging radio frequency oscillations of electromagnetic radiation and something that can count the frequency of that oscillation. So for example, the clock face that on a grandfather clock that measures every time the pendulum swings. Um, So that's the basics of a clock. But these kind of oscillators, whether it's a quartz oscillator in your wristwatch or grandfather clock pendulum, um, these aren't really consistent over time they change in ways that are unexpected. If you wanted to compare two clocks, how would you know which clock was right? And the way we get around this for doing these very high-level clocks like you find on satellites is to reference the oscillator to an atomic ensemble. So we use atoms to tell the clock when it's telling the right time. Why do you use atoms? So atoms are useful in a couple different ways. One is because of quantum mechanics, we know that the energy levels in an, in an atom are quantized. And what that means is you basically have this slew of electrons around an atom. And when they're in, they're in their lowest kind of energy state, they'll just sit there very comfortably. You can shine any amount of energy on your atom and it'll just sit in this lowest state. Because of quantum mechanics, it says there's a precise energy that'll excite these electrons into the next stable state and you can shine any amount of energy you want on this atomic system. and It won't do anything until you get exactly that precise energy. That can be quite a narrow band of frequencies. We then take that information that, oh look, our oscillator has excited this atom and we use the atomic fluorescence that's produced in this process to tell the oscillator, yep, you're in the right place now and that is the right frequency. That is our clock. So the atoms are really just the reference for this oscillator, which could be a laser, which could be a microwave cavity. So these clocks, these atomic clocks, are very precise. Uh, Can you give me any idea how precise they are? One of the most accurate clocks ever produced is one that's based on a single aluminum ion. And it's being made at the National Institute for Standards and Technology, which is the National Metrology Institute for the US um, in Boulder, Colorado. And this clock is so accurate that if it had been running for the entire lifetime of the universe, so 13.7 billion years, it would only lose or gain in its timing less than four seconds over that entire span of time. And so this is kind of an accuracy of some parts in 10 to the 17 is how we would talk about it in metrology terminology. Okay, so there are all these complex things that need to be taken into account to have accurate GPS positioning systems. Is there any way that we can have even better GPS positioning systems? The obvious way to make a better navigation system based on satellites is just simply to put better clocks in your satellites because that clears up a lot of the timing issues that cause these position inaccuracies. And that's precisely what the European Space Agency has decided to do. So there's a new system of satellites for satellite navigation that's being put into space right now called Galileo. And this will be a civilian-based satellite navigation system with a number of levels of um, operator user, including some safety of life Senses, so you could use it for autonomous transport, and so cars and airplanes being absolutely controlled on these navigation signals. There's also a search and rescue system where not only will you be able to use your receiver to tell a system that you're in trouble, but that system will be able to contact you and say help is on the way, which is an advance over the current GPS system. But the the Galileo system should give kind of positional accuracy to a meter for the general population.
2: Next time I'm in the U.K., I'll look up Ann Curtis at the National Physics Laboratory, and you know maybe she can give me a, a tour of all those cool instruments they're making. Speaking of which, nice telescope.
0: Yeah, it's an old 2.4-inch refractor. Oh,
2: really? I thought it was a 3.1.
0: Yeah, I can, you don't have an eye for, for objective lenses. But it's badly collimated, so I never used it. Let's, let's make a pile of stuff to get rid of.
2: Okay, then we can haul it out. There'll be more sorting, more science, and more surprises coming up. Incest wine cellar
0: on Big Picture Science. Hey, is that my wind up sundial
2: over there? Ow. So, Seth, did you build this wine cellar or did it come with a house?
0: Don't all Northern California houses come with wine cellars? No, actually. All right, let's keep our know. eye on the prize. Our goal here is to find this film. I want to see those shots of Sputnik passing over my house. Okay,
2: we have to get through this mess here. You know, it has the makings of a mishmash on Big Picture Science. There's a little bit of everything.
0: I'm telling you, these are valuable scientific memorabilia. Hey, here's my life-size foam reproduction of the blob. You know, I won that. When the blob was just
2: seven feet tall before it took over the entire city.
0: Yeah, by bulking up on the (laughs) residents.
2: Hey, here's an actual bottle of wine in your wine cellar. This is the first I've seen. What is this?
0: Uh, Who knows? I don't drink wine. I mean, that's pretentious. Now, root beer... Hey, Seth,
2: this is old. This is a 1961 Chateau something.
0: Maybe I want it as a door prize. I mean, we can take it outside along with all the other stuff we're getting rid of and... Watch out! <laughs> Give it away. Although I, I doubt people will want wine that's so old.
2: But this might be really good wine. I mean, I bet, I bet it's expensive.
0: Uh, yeah. Well, everything tastes the same over a certain price, and and that price is five ninety nine. Although I wouldn't even pay that much. I'm not a wine connoisseur. Too fussy. All those terms, you know, tannin, terroir. Who even knows what that is? I mean, legs. How can a wine have legs? Good point. Well, those, come to think of it, actually, science has a lot of these fussy terms often used to impress people as well. I mean, you know, like buried in the noise or something's thermalized, the word hypotenuse. I mean, how often do you use that word, hypotenuse? You could use it with this
2: square thing over here.
0: I suppose. Or quatrophrenia.
2: You know, that's the obsessive reliance on math and statistics. 78.5% of scientists
0: have that. Yeah, I think it's actually 74.5%. Okay, but you know who is preoccupied with scientific nomenclature? Jonathan Eisen. I mean, he's an evolutionary biologist, but he also keeps tab on evolving science culture and our current obsession with genomic terms. Terms such as, such as what? Uh, The trend of sticking a a, a suffix onto whatever it is you're studying to make it sound important and impressive. You know, you got your genome.
2: Oh, and something like the connectome, which is the study of all those neuronal connections in the brain.
0: Right. And Jonathan Eisen thinks this this om-sweet om-stuff has gotten out of hand. I mean, (laughs) the study of sociology, sociomics. And there was a conference about all this in Denmark called Copenhagenomics. I mean, I'm not kidding.
2: So he's really in the field of suffocating suffixomics. Yeah.
0: Jonathan, there seems to be an unholy growth in technical terminology. What's going on here?
4: There's been an obsession, I guess, among people to invent a new word that has a connection to genomics.
0: Well, well, give give me some examples.
4: Yeah, so for example, someone invented the word vaccinomics to refer to genomic studies of response to vaccines. Someone else invented a word called museomics for using genomics in museum studies. There's an unbelievable collection, the sexome, the connectome, the whatever ohm you want to do, There, someone has tried to tie it in some way to the field of genomics. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well that seems a bit contrived. I mean, is it only in the field of uh, genetics that this is happening? I mean, all these omics sound like they're related in some way to genetics.
4: Yeah, I mean, other fields have the same thing. So, for example, you know, when there's a controversy, people now add gate to the controversy to mimic Watergate. So there's Monica Gate and, you know, Sailing Gate and whatever. People do this in lots of areas rather than inventing their own new word to take advantage of some prefix or suffix on words and add that to theirs.
0: Well, I can understand that in the case of, well, something like Monica Gate, because right away, just that term, in addition to sounding clever, it tells you a lot about what's going on, that there, there's some sort of scandal. That So it's actually kind of a useful shorthand. But when you talk about vaccinomics, I have the feeling that somebody's looking for funding.
4: Yeah, I think someone's looking for funding, but also someone is trying to make their work seem very comprehensive. That's what the genome is about. The genome is all of the genes, all of the DNA in an
0: organism. And that word comes from when?
4: Oh, in the uh, 1800s, there was a German—well, early 1900s, there was a German who is credited with the first use of something related to this word— which in German was something to the effect of genome, and then all the other sort of genome and genomics and et cetera are derived from that.
0: Okay. So th- there was just one word, and it seems to have spawned this, this explosion. So you say it's, it's to give the field some sort of prestige, some sort of heft that it otherwise might not have.
4: Yeah, I think, you know, if you, for example, are studying, well, vaccines, to go back to that example, and you're doing genomic style work why not just you know call what you're doing vaccinomics and at some level it does work like the gate example that we talked about where without having to say too many words you're, tr- you're conveying that you're doing something big scale with lots of genes in a particular area and the problem with it is is that first of all frequently people aren't doing that so it's a lie And second of all, it's an unnecessary sort of explosion of terminology when you could just say genomics of vaccine studies. I worry a lot about people overselling genomics as the solution to all of the world's problems. And language is a part of that. If people keep inventing new omics words and make it seem like genomics will solve every biological problem in existence, I think that that's dangerous for science.
0: Well, there must be some benefit, though. I mean, clearly there's pushback on this because you're pushing back, right? You have an omics word of the day.
4: Yeah, I've been giving out awards on my blog, the bad omics word of the day and the worst new omics word award, and there are now literally something like two to 3,000 words that have used the omics suffix in some way.
0: Well, I hate to ask it quite this way, but have you been effectual or otherwise in stemming the tide, the explosion of omics words?
4: I probably have been anti-effectual. There are people who tell me now that they include horrible, bad omics words in papers or blog posts in the hope that I will give them an award and call attention to what they're doing.
0: It sounds like you've been counterproductive. Can, Can you give me some examples of those?
4: Oh, there's one called Pharmacomicrobiomics, where the person who invented this word basically told me that he was taunting me to try and get me to write about it in some way.
0: So it's almost a parody of the phenomenon.
4: Yeah, which I'm actually fine with. If they you know, use a term in some sort of humorous way, I think that's great. I don't have any complaints about it. What I have a complaint about is when people expect other people to use that word in a serious way as part of scientific discourse,
0: you know, you have my sympathies. I, I, I might point out that in electrical engineering, there's a unit called the ohm. <laughs> <laughs> so I can, you know, it refers to resistance. So I can imagine that the study of resistance might be ohmomics.
4: Uh, someone uh, has actually written that.
0: <laughs> oh, <laughs> see, I'm always behind the curve. All right, Jonathan Eisen, thank you so much for being part of this uh, interview and furthering the field of interview omics. <laughs> It's been a real pleasure.
4: You're quite welcome.
2: Evolutionary biologist Jonathan Eisen can now add interview omics to the blog he writes at the University of California Davis. Can you hang on to just this box of maps here for a second, Seth? I just want to check my messages.
0: Molly, you can't get any reception down here. We're 10 feet under.
2: And the satellite waves don't go that far?
0: Nope, they can't. Radio waves have a hard time getting through ground or rock. But, you know, there's another threat to your phone reception you probably have never thought about. Solar storms. You know, a big solar storm, it can throw off satellite transmission because when the sun burps, it burps charged particles in a strong magnetic field into space, and those can short-circuit the electronics of our orbiting satellites.
2: When it burps, does it sound like this? Some packing material.
0: Yeah, okay. You know, in space, nobody can hear you burp. I, I recently talked to solar physicist Carl Shriver at Lockheed Martin about it. Carl, we hear about space weather But I I don't even know what that means because, you know, there's not much of an atmosphere in space. So how can there be any weather?
5: Uh, Well, there's a lot of things that the sun throws out at us. There's something called the solar wind that flows by the Earth all the time, and it's highly variable. It comes by at speeds that go from 400 to 800 kilometers a second. So it's a really fast thing, but there's very little to it, except that sometimes it carries a strong magnetic field. And when that collides with the Earth's magnetic field, you get something that's called space weather.
0: So how is that space weather manifested? I mean, what, what do we see? Is it, you know, more northern lights or do, do satellites go dead? What, what happens? Why, why do
5: I care about this? But there's a variety of things that happens. The longest known form of space weather is indeed the phenomenon of the aurora. This is when very fast particles that are made in that interaction of the solar wind with the Earth's magnetic field hit the Earth's atmosphere and make it glow. But as it makes it glow, it also does other things. It is a changing magnetic field, and a changing magnetic field means electrical currents that can couple into our electric power grid. So it can actually cause damage to huge transformers in the grid.
0: Ha- has that actually happened?
5: It has happened. Uh, it's fortunately a very rare event. The power grid is fairly well protected. But it, there has been, in like in 1989, there was a major power outage in Quebec and Canada and northern the northeastern U.S., That was attributed to space weather. Right now we think that it actually happens more often than we think. But there's small ripple effects that something else is going on. And then this space weather might trip it. Just that little bit of added extra load on the system that trips it. What we're worried about is that the sun could throw a really big storm at us. Which happens every once every, every hundred or once every thousand years. That could really create major damage in the grid. And that would be something highly undesirable. So we're trying to both predict when that might happen and protect in the system that it's less susceptible to that kind of space weather.
0: Well, what about the effects on our satellites? I mean, we have thousands of satellites orbiting the Earth that are doing all sorts of useful stuff and some stuff that we don't even know about. But, you know, are they susceptible to this kind of storm?
5: The two ways in which our use of satellites is susceptible to space storms. Sometimes the sun creates very fast energetic particles. They basically travel with the speed of light. They fly through everything that's in their way. But as they do so and they fly through, say, um, the computer systems on a satellite, they can upset the computer system and cause it to fail either temporarily, so it takes an hour or more for it to reset, or to fail permanently. Sometimes we do lose satellites that way. The second way that it interacts with us is... We also rely on the way that we communicate with satellites, particularly when we navigate, use a GPS system. We use the radio signals from the satellites. And when the sun shines, its weather signature, the strong extreme ultraviolet light that can go up by a factor of a thousand in a matter of a minute, uh, when it shines that on the Earth's topmost Earth's atmosphere, this signal from the GPS satellites gets bent into a different direction and the result is that you might be thinking that you're somewhere where you're not you could be hundreds of meters off in position if that happens and that's also not a good thing to happen
0: no that actually sounds quite serious to me well have we sort of licked this problem now in terms of space weather do we know enough about it to be able to predict the most severe storms that might come off the sun or is there still something to be done in terms of understanding or in terms of instrumentation so that we can see these things coming?
5: The problem with the most severe storms is that they are very rare. So um, the really bad storms, we think, actually happen only once a century. So we've seen one or two in the last 50 years that we've actually had satellites pointing at the sun, looking at it in great detail. Two storms out of many is not enough knowledge. So we have to learn a lot more, which we do by continuing to look at the sun, but we also look at stars other than the sun. There are many stars that are just like the sun out there. And if we can monitor enough of them, then effectively what we do is something like a doctor would do in in understanding a disease. You don't look at one patient. You look at many patients. We do this with the sun. We look at the sun in particular in great detail, and we look at many other stars where we don't see the details, but we can see so many of them that it still helps a lot. If you had to put a bet on it, how would you typify our sun?
0: Is it sort of average in terms of its uh, volatility, in terms of its activity, its danger, whatever, or is it particularly quiescent? Are we lucky to be living around a, a kind of well-behaved star, or, or, or is it more aggressive than most?
5: For stars of its age, it is just typical. It's doing just the same thing that other stars of its age are doing. A long time ago, before life really developed on Earth, the sun would have been extremely much more active. It would have thrown storms at us a couple of times a day, very much stronger, like hundreds of times stronger than we now see. So in a sense, we're past the most active sun. We don't have the petulant young sun doing the worst possible thing, but it can still throw a punch. But it doesn't do it very frequently anymore.
0: Well, finally, Carl, there are plenty of people who find it interesting, perhaps even occasionally profitable, to predict... The end of the world. And one of the many scenarios for this happening is that the sun goes nuts. I routinely hear people claiming that this solar cycle, you know, the sun is going to have have this giant coronal mass ejection which could sterilize or partially sterilize the planet. Is there any truth to these, these sorts of claims?
5: We need to find out. Um, the potential of it, the potential of coming to an end basically as a civilization is is real enough that we need to understand it. What we're trying to do is we look back at records that go much longer than what we have in the written records in libraries. We look in ice. We look in uh, carbon-14 records in tree rings. We look at other stars to try and understand how often can a sun like the one we live next to throw a really bad storm at us. But there's another thing that's going on. The sun isn't changing terribly much. Uh, the timescale of a human civilization is too short for a star to even notice. But our civilization is changing. A hundred years ago, we had hardly any sensitivity to space weather. People were just beginning to build the communication systems, long cables, the telegraph lines that picked up space storms and caused an occasional fire and somebody to burn their fingers. Right now, we're much more reliant on everything electrical and electronic, and that's going to grow So the more complex and the more susceptible our systems become, the more sensitive our society becomes. So even if the sun doesn't throw a a really bad storm that we haven't seen at us, our systems are getting more susceptible. We need to understand both of those aspects. Carl Schreiber, thanks so very much for talking with me. It was a pleasure. Thank you.
2: Hey, Seth, you could give this painting of the sun to Carl Schreiber over there at Lockheed Martin, but tell him not to look at it directly.
0: that painting is one ten-billionth scale, by the way. Did you do this painting? Uh, No. No sign of my film, but I'm, I'm sure we'll find it soon as we sort through another few hundred pounds of this science junk.
2: I thought they were valuable artifacts. Oh,
0: well, that's what they are, of course.
2: <laughs> and they're all in CES wine cellar on big picture science. Do you want this box of old fuses?
0: Okay, Molly, I'm sure we're going to find my roll of undeveloped film. You know, the one with the photos I made of Sputnik sailing over my house in 1957. I mean, that might be really nifty. There's one last corner here to check. Hey, look, actual books. Oh, yeah. Well, that's my set of World Book Encyclopedia. You know, I kind of miss the days of looking up things in the encyclopedia, randomly coming across other neat stuff as you flip through the pages.
2: Another telescope. You think you were an astronomer or something.
0: <laughs> you got to keep up with the technology. I mean, telescopes are improving all the time. Some of the most advanced ones aren't even here on the ground. I mean, they're in orbit where the view is better.
2: Right, like NASA's Kepler mission. It's able to check out all those planets orbiting other stars to see if any are
0: Earth-like. Well, it's done an amazing (laughs) job. I mean, by looking at the slight dip in brightness of stars as planets pass in front of them, it can tell us whether a planet's the same size as the Earth or whether it might have a similar temperature. But at the University of California, Santa Cruz, Astronomer Jonathan Fortney, who, by the way, I believe also has a lot of telescopes in his wine cellar, says that Kepler can also tell us
6: whether our solar system is typical of solar systems or not. I think we're finding that it's not typical. I think we're finding that uh, there's lots of ways to build planetary systems, and ours is probably not the most common way.
0: Well, Well, give me some aspect of our planetary system that's not typical. I mean, aside from the obvious thing that, you know, we've got... Homo sapiens on one of the planets. What else is not typical?
6: Uh, within the orbit of Mercury, which is about 88 days, uh, we don't have any planets. And what uh, we're finding is that it's perhaps m- more common to have uh, planets within 88 days, even planets much more massive than the Earth. Oh, you say within
0: 88 days, you mean planets that orbit their sun in fewer than 88 That's days, right. like Mercury does. That's right. That's right. So between Mercury and the sun, there are no planets in our solar system. But if I were to take the nearest, you know, hundred solar systems. I would find that they did have planets that
6: close in. More than 50 of them, yeah, certainly. Wow. Is, is there something else odd about our solar system that research has shown? The sizes of our planets, I think, are not necessarily representative. So we have smaller planets, smaller than Earth, one Earth radius. Then we have Uranus and Neptune, which are about four times the Earth's size. Then we have gas giants that are about ten times Earth's size. But in other planetary systems, it's quite common to have planets between one and four Earth radii. So we don't have any planets that size. But uh, what Kepler has shown us is that that's perhaps one of the most common sizes of planets. So between one and four. OK. So now I'm thinking of the sizes
0: of the planets in our solar system. Mercury's small, Pluto's small. Of course, right. it's not a planet, but whatever. And, and, and then you have the Earth. You have Mars. Mars is smaller than the Earth. Then you have the Earth. And the next step up is Uranus or Neptune, right? Four Mm -hmm. times bigger, yeah. Okay, four times bigger. But other solar systems have something between Earth and Neptune in size. We don't. Does a majority of these other solar systems,
6: do they exhibit these sort of intermediate-sized planets sort of? Super Earths? It looks like it. We don't even know what to call them, super Earths or mini-Neptunes or sub-Neptunes, but two to three Earth radii in between Earth size and Neptune size is uh, perhaps the most common size of planets, it's the most common size that the Kepler mission has sound, found so far.
0: My goodness. All right. So, so we have no example of what a planet like that might be like. That's right. I, I mean, would it have a hard surface? I mean, Neptune doesn't seem to have a hard surface. You can't stand on Neptune even if you go there. Uh, Would would these sort of mini-Neptunes or super-Earths, would they have a hard surface?
6: We don't really know. Um, Probably most of them don't. They probably mostly have to have a thick hydrogen-helium atmosphere like Uranus and Neptune does. So um, probably most of them don't, but if they're a a rocky object that's accumulated a lot of hydrogen, perhaps quite a ways down there, there would be a rocky surface.
0: Well, is this because these other solar systems have uh, central stars that are unlike our sun, Is that the reason they're different, or would we find these different sorts of solar systems around stars that aren't different from the sun?
6: You can find different sorts of solar systems around sun, stars that look just like the sun, and we really don't know why that is yet. You know, uh,
0: I never thought that uh, there was anything terribly special about us because I've been taught by a lot of astronomy history to believe that we're not special. But Jonathan, you're sort of suggesting maybe we are special.
6: I think it's too early to tell. I think all that we can say for sure is that there's a much much wider array of kinds of planetary systems than certainly I was expecting a few years ago.
0: Now, you're interested in the atmospheres of these planets around other stars. Can, can we possibly even study that? I mean, we, we don't even see these planets, right? We just sort of measure their effects. They, they cause their star to wobble or they get in the way of the light of their star or something, but we don't
6: actually see them. That's right. That's right. So for, for some planets, though, um, when they pass in front of their parent star called the transit, we can actually see that a small fraction of the parent star's light actually passes through the planet's thin outer atmosphere. And so some of that light gets absorbed by the planet's atmosphere, a tiny fraction of it, and so you can actually uh, see the features due to molecules uh, and other gases absorbing in the atmosphere. And, and what do you see? Well, it depends. For big gas giant planets like Jupiter, people have seen uh, carbon monoxide, methane, carbon dioxide, sodium vapor, uh, weird things. Uh, for, this, for some smaller planets, people are trying to see things like water vapor. What, what, what about oxygen? Uh, people have seen oxygen in water vapor. No, uh, no molecules yet, though. Okay, so, so no, no cabbages in space yet. Not so far. Okay. You, you've also
0: talked about uh, very peculiar atmospheres, what you call rock-cloud Atmospheres. Now, that sounds like a hazard to uh, aviation to me, <laughs> well, what do you mean by a rock-cloud atmosphere? <laughs>
6: well, if we think about an Earth's atmosphere, we have uh, water vapor, that's a gas that condenses to form water droplets, liquid and solid, and that happens at around Earth temperatures. But at much higher temperatures, you can have maybe 1,500 or 2,000 degrees. You can have things like silicate and iron going from the gas phase to condensing to liquid and solid phases, so at very hot temperatures, you can actually Actually, get rock clouds, dust clouds, and iron clouds.
0: So, so what would these look like? I mean, would it look like you know, a big dust cloud ripping across Australia or the American Southwest
6: or something like that? They're probably planet-wide. Uh, they're probably all over the planet, and we think we we have good evidence for these in big, massive super Jupiter planets and also cool brown dwarfs, things that are around two thousand degrees. We have evidence for planet-wide storms, planet-wide uh, clouds of these of this rock cloud. Well.
0: Finally, Jonathan, I mean, you're, you're interested in something that, uh, you know, it's, it's a fascinating topic, the idea of can we measure the gaseous envelopes of planets, you know, dozens, maybe hundreds of light years away, even farther. Uh, what do you think the outlook is for being able to find biogenic gases, the kind of gases, I mean, you've mentioned methane, but the kind of gases that would tell us, you know, there really is life on these planets?
6: The future is bright. I just think we have to be patient, which is always hard. Uh, if you take a spectrum of the Earth passing between the Moon and the Sun, you can, that's called the lunar eclipse, You can you can actually see that the Moon appears reddish. That's from light that's passed through the planets planet Earth's thin outer atmosphere. And you can take a spectrum of that light and you can see things like oxygen. And so this technique, we can apply it that we're applying it now to gas giant planets. We can apply it to Earth's, but it's really a technological problem to how to build uh, you know, a massive space telescope to do something like that. But I'm optimistic it can be done. Okay. Well, it can be done. Will it be done or is this uh, something that's not
0: going to be funded in our lifetime?
6: I think if we are able to find Earth-sized planets in Earth-like orbits around nearby stars, and we as a worldwide community know these planets are there, uh, I think that will help to provide the impetus to find the funding to build telescopes because we'd like to know um, what these planets are like. Everyone would like to know that, I think. Jonathan Fortney, you're really a thumbs-up
0: kind of guy, and it's been a pleasure to talk with you. All right. Thanks a lot.
2: We could give this old telescope to astronomer Jonathan Fortney, or maybe this set of Encyclopedias. Do you think he'd like those?
0: Well, I, I don't know. Let's keep the telescope, but we'll put the books out. Paper cut. Uh, oh. You know, what's interesting about understanding other solar systems, of course, is judging whether there are any Earth-like worlds, and whether they're rare, whether they're common, whether ours is unique... And then there's the
2: question of whether or not there's intelligent life on those planets. You know, I heard an interesting method for trying to detect intelligent life. You did? Look to see whether or not the aliens use hairspray.
0: Who knew aliens had hair? I mean, E.T. didn't have hair.
2: Well, Sanjoy Sam, who does have a lot of hair, is an astrobiologist, and his idea is that if you can detect CFCs, you know, chlorofluorocarbons, then you can assume that there's not just life, but there's intelligent life, at least intelligent enough to make hairspray. Although I have to say, you have to wonder how intelligent these aliens are if they're emitting CFCs into their
7: atmosphere? (laughs) So the hairspray is an analogy for CFCs. And so what we want to do is create some simulations to test whether or not one could detect the presence of CFCs in extrasolar planetary atmospheres. CFCs being? Chlorofluorocarbons. So that's what's in your Teflon pan to prevent the food to stick. It's what used to be in hairspray back in the days. And once it's in an atmosphere, It's very uh, hard to get it out, because it's a very inert substrate.
2: So this is what was released into the atmosphere. And we had a big problem with it in the 1980s. And it was eating away at the ozone layer. Um, And that's why they banned aerosols Mm -hmm. at that time, so we could protect the ozone. Uh, Why is hairspray of a concern to you now? And again, what is the link to aliens? Uh
7: So CFCs, those chlorofluorocarbons, which were part of hairspray, are entirely a product of industrialization. So they're not at all natural. Right? So if we could detect them in an extrasolar planetary atmosphere, that would be a strong sign that there is some kind of industrialized civilization that lies below.
2: I see. So you use the hairspray as a metric as to the sophistication of a civilization, and in this case an alien civilization.
7: That's correct. It is a proxy for intelligent life.
2: And it wouldn't necessarily have to be hairspray, but the idea that they had produced these chlorofluorocarbons somehow.
7: That's exactly right.
2: Is that an Inevitable trajectory for a civilization, they would follow the trajectory
7: of our civilization? Industrialization is a process that uses the natural resources to fabricate things, and the result of that is pollution, and CFCs are a product of that pollution. So it's a a good test to check whether or not they are there in an extrasolar planetary atmospheres because they are fully and completely artificial.
2: Okay, so now your plan, um, with your group, is try to, to detect these CFCs somehow, and I understand that this is a crowdsourcing project. How does
7: that work? So that's right. So what we're going to do is simulate the presence of CFCs in an atmosphere using the computer, because current telescopes do not have the resolution to find them, but the next generation of telescopes will be able to measure the composition of extrasolar planetary atmosphere to the extent that CFCs could be detected.
2: Okay, but crowdsourcing, why can't you just do this on your own? Why do you need a crowd to help you with this project?
7: (laughs) We're doing this as an effort, a part of a nonprofit, and we're all scattered around the country. So computation is something we can all do together. And so the funds is to get the people, you and me, to get excited about doing science and helping scientists to do it. So crowdsourcing means leveraging the public to to get the funds to do science in a way, in a new way, in a 21st century way that does not depend on, on government support.
2: Now, so you have a number of groups around the country, or the world?
7: So it's a it's an international organization, yeah. It's more like we're scattered individuals, right, in groups. We form one group.
2: Yeah. I'm a scattered individual <laughs> at times, too, but I don't know <laughs> if I could help you on this particular project. So now uh, the idea is that you look at extrasolar planets, and of course we have over 3,000, I think, now to choose from, and you're trying to understand the chemical properties of the atmosphere?
7: Yes. So in, in the future missions, they will be able to detect the CFCs in extrasolar planetary atmospheres. And we don't have data yet to compare that to, so our simulations will be to generate that data. So once the telescopes return information from those extrasolar planetary atmospheres, they will have something to compare to.
2: How do you detect CFC in an atmosphere? You know, we're trying to determine whether or not there's water vapor in some of these atmospheres, or if there's methane. um, A number of chemical components that suggest that the planet might be suitable for life. So how do you how do you detect CFC in particular?
7: It's the same process. Uh, different gases absorb light at different wavelengths, and CFCs have their own particular light frequencies, light fingerprints that we can find. The problem is only looking at CO2 and methane is that there are also geological processes that can create them, so it's always very ambiguous. Whereas CFCs, because they're not natural, would be an unambiguous detection of of something exciting happening on a planetary surface.
2: Okay, well, Sanjoy, let's say that you you pick up traces of a CFC on a faraway planet. What do you do next? Do you send these aliens a a message that says, cut back on your CFCs. It's going to destroy your atmosphere or your ozone layer the way it did ours? Or what's your next step?
7: I think the, the implications, if we do find alien life, will be not trying to save them in case they're becoming victim of pollution, but it's more reassessing for us what it means to be human beings. That will create a fantastic conversation within the different cultures of our planet to really see what makes us a common species as opposed to focusing on what makes us different.
2: Well, say more about that. So let's say that you do detect alien life. They do use hairspray, okay. What sort of question then would you want to ask next about what it means to be human?
7: I think it will trigger very interesting conversations Focusing on what unites us as a species because now we're not alone in the universe as opposed to fighting for why we're different
2: and what unites us is the use of hairspray
7: what unites us is our species that are using our planet for resources and other planets other civilizations might be doing that too and so it puts everything in perspective that we cannot use our resources forever and it's a natural product of developing an intelligence is to use the product of your planets. But we don't have to do this carefully?
2: Sanjoy Sam, thank you very much for speaking with us.
7: Thank you very much for your time.
0: Well, next time I see astrobiologist Sanjoy Sam, I'm going to ask him, what if the aliens invent not hairspray, but brill cream? Hey, look here, Molly. Look, 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 look. It's my 120 film roll right next to this big black box here. This is great. Yay, you found your film. Yep, now all I have to do is wrestle up some developer and hypo, and I can develop these 60-year-old photos.
2: Um, Seth, this box has a radioactive symbol on it.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, that's because it's my atomic energy kit from the 1950s. Should we be worried? No, no, no. I mean, it came with some real radioactive samples, but, you know, they're very, very weak. You'd have to be lying right next to them for decades for any effect.
2: Where did you find the film? You know what, I bet this box is well shielded.
0: It's cardboard.
2: Grab the film anyway and let's grab this stuff and let's get out of here. I'll take these books.
0: And I'll take this 1961 Chateau. I mean, it's only taken up space down here. Okay, I'm right behind you. I've got the lights. Well, coming
2: up into the fresh air, and that's the end of our trip down to Seth's Wine Cellar. Thanks to Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance.
0: Also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David. The NASA Astrobiology Institute, too. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners.
2: Your ears have been attuned to our science potpourri show, SES Wine Cellar. You can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're online, why not go to Facebook, become a fan of the program. You can leave your comments there as well.
0: If you're a podcast listener, but you prefer over-the-air radio because you can't hear it underground, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know you like the program.
6: Whoa, what's this pile of stuff? What's the sign say? Free to a good home. Whoa, so these guys are giving this stuff away. A set of world book encyclopedias? A collection of old fuses? A quite nicely done model of Jupiter. Whoa, this is a 1961 Chateau Palmer Margot! I was just reading about this very wine in the journal Expensive Winomics. Let me double-check the value on my highly accurate smartphone that pins my location with precision due to the unerring quality of atomic clocks and do so before the solar storm interrupts service. Wow, this Chateau is worth that much? If this is what he's giving away, what vintage wine is he keeping? This guy must be some kind of connoisseur.